Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving this past uh, week. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes? Good? All right. Uh, I had a pretty good Thanksgiving as well. Uh, One of the reasons I would say I had a good Thanksgiving is because I have lots of people around me who are good at cooking, okay? And uh, I love eating, and so it's great that I have a lot of people around me who are good at cooking. My wife, in particular, she's an excellent cook. I'm not just up here to try to score brownie points, uh, literal brownie points. I, I really believe she's, she's just good at cooking. She, she would tell you, though, um, earlier in her life, she had no idea what she was doing when it came to cooking, sort of like me today. Uh, she, she didn't know what she was doing, didn't care much. You know, when you're younger, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about that sort of thing. You just get whatever's fast and cheap and will satisfy you for a little while, you know. And so that's what she would tell you uh, she used to be like. Uh, but thankfully for me and for her both, uh, the first couple of years we were married, she took it upon herself to just like learn how to be good at cooking. She wanted to do it. I, I promise it wasn't like Tanner yelling at Katie, like, learn to cook. She just wanted to learn how to be a good cook. And so she took it upon herself to learn about it, learn about flavors and techniques and all these different things. And uh, she really turned herself into someone who is very good at cooking. She grew that capacity for herself to be good at it. And so I'm very grateful because, like I said, I like to eat and she likes to cook. It, it works out really great. Um, when I cook, though, uh, there's, there's the inevitable day or two a week that I end up being the one who, just how things work out, it's like on me to cook dinner that night and stuff. And I know in my head how good of a cook she is. And I know how very mediocre of a cook I am. And so uh, it doesn't matter how well I follow a recipe or anything like that. I'm always a little shaky as I like present her with her food. Not that she's mean or anything, but I just know she knows what good food tastes like because she's learned how to do it, you know? And I'm not I'm not totally like incapable. I don't just like bungle everything in the kitchen, but I just, I know I don't take those little extra steps to make things that much better. She knows like, you should see our spice cabinet. It's a whole shelf of a cabinet. So many spices. I'm like, do we need this many? To her, yes, is the, is the answer. Because she, she always knows, okay, even if this recipe calls for this, this, and this, she's tasting it along the way. She's adding in extra things. That's what I think makes a good cook. You know, somebody who like knows, okay, this little thing is missing. Let's change it up here. Let's not do this. She's just so good at that. And I'm not very good at that. So uh, thankfully, she's also very kind. So that when I cook, she, she uh, I'm pretty sure she's in her head criticizing it, but she always keeps it to herself. So that's very kind of her to do that. But yeah, I know I mess things up. I know I don't do things that well. Um, but she's really kind about it. Uh, but she's a good cook. Uh, it's part of who she is. She knows good food. She knows how to make good food. She's good at cooking. So she can also, you know, accurately judge whether or not f- some food at a restaurant is good. I tell her all the time, you should do, you know, food critiquing or whatever, because she just knows, she knows what little thing is missing. Uh, she's a good cook. We call God good, Right? God is good. Uh, What on earth do we mean when we call God good? 
I'm calling my wife a good cook. What do we mean? Like, this is a totally ridiculous comparison, right? Like, somebody's good at some measly little human skill, and then we call the creator of every single thing we've ever known and ever will know, we call him good, too. God's good all the time, and all the time God's good, and we sing, good, good father, and we sing, of the goodness of God. We've got all, like, it's, it's a part of our language as Christians, right? So what in the world do we mean? Have you ever taken the time to consider what you're meaning when you say, you know, God's good? We've got all of our own definitions, and words today are as fuzzy as could be, aren't they? All of the words in the English language, we've got differing definitions of them, different meanings behind them. So good might be one of our worst. When you ask somebody how their day was and they say, well, they should say well, right? It was go- it's going well. If they say good, what does that mean? Does that mean that it was actually good or was it like that's actually bad? You know, you have to try to read the, subcon- the subtext with people. Good, what, is it, what does it even mean? Does it mean it's like it was okay? When you call a person good, does that just mean they're just like uh, kind of a likable person? Or does it mean they're actually a great person? Does it mean they're an upstanding person? They're a moral person? Or maybe they're skilled at something like cooking or something else at their job or whatever. Good can mean a lot of things, can't it? So what does it mean when we call God good? There's a reason I want to talk about this today. And uh, I'm not afraid of our, you as our people here at High Plains uh, going through this, but there's something that we're all susceptible to, and uh, I'm afraid of it a little bit as a pastor, okay? There's this phenomenon in the Christian world today, and it's, it's not just in the Christian world, but all, all sorts of different disciplines, but it's called deconstruction. Have you heard of this? When it comes to faith, there are people who deconstruct their faith, and it sounds a lot like you would imagine. It's people who, for whatever reason in their life, they decide or some event happens to them and they start to analyze the faith that they maybe grew up with in a different way. Maybe one of the beliefs that they've had for a long time is tested by the experiences of life of themselves or someone close to them that makes them question the beliefs that they grew up with. There's an author, I read a book, who... Uh, wrote about this topic because he pastored in the Portland, Oregon area for like 20 years. And the last 20 years in that area, you can imagine the type of stuff that he has had to deal with, with people going through these kind of deconstruction things. He, he had so many stories, it was terrifying to me. He just story after story of people, people he pastored who were going through these things, who it was, it was a crisis moment in their life and they were analyzing and looking at their faith and really like, trying to figure out if it was real, if it was true, if they believed in it, if they really wanted to believe in it, I should say. And one of the scariest things that he said, he quoted this statistic that 60% of Christian people who grow up Christian after they leave high school or leave the home will deconstruct in some way. Not sure where he got this statistic, but I'm, I'm not too sure it's that far off. I bet it's pretty true. And it's not scary to me that people are like looking into their faith and analyzing it and making sure that what they believe is true. I'm all for that sort of thing. You know, if, we, if that's what deconstruction is, I think that's what it was supposed to be, but it's been corrupted in so many ways. And in all reality, when people say that they're going through faith deconstruction, what they're really doing is faith destructing. They're just taking it all apart because whatever happened in their life, whatever new knowledge they got maybe or something bad just happened to them and so they had this one belief 
in God or this one belief that made up their faith tested and now they're testing every single one because they don't trust in God like they used to. They're going through faith destruction, not deconstruction. So that's why I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid that my, on a good night I have 30 junior high kids, okay? And I'm on the teaching them about faith part of their story, right? If, if 18 out of my 30 kids when they graduate high school go through some sort of deconstruction, I've got a big job to do, and Pastor Dan has a big job to do, to teach them the real things of God, the real scripture, the real truth of the Christian faith, right? Because we'd want them to test it. If they're going to test it someday, test it and find out that it's actually truth, find out that it is actually how faith works. That's what I would hope would happen. But for so many people, they go into it not thinking uh, what you're supposed to think. when you, If somebody deconstructs, the assumption is that someday they will reconstruct that faith even stronger than it was before, you know? It's like a bone breaking, and after it sets and heals, it's actually stronger than it was in the first place. I believe that's medically true. That's what happened to my arm. That's what the doctor told me, at least. Might have just been to make me feel better. But that's what it's supposed to do. But many people, it's not what they go into it like. They see this one brick of their life of faith that maybe crumbles and shatters some belief in God. Maybe his goodness. Maybe they've been told all their life, as we rightly should, that God is good. But they experience something that tells them, oh, it's, I don't feel like he's good, you know? And that's such a thing today. So we don't feel like he is all the time, Right? And so that one brick falls to the ground, and then in their distrust, they look at every other brick that makes up the life of their faith, and they distrust all those bricks as well. Why would I trust those bricks when this one didn't hold up the weight of my life like it was supposed to, like I was told it would? That's what I'm a little bit afraid of. And so that's why I'm going to talk about God's goodness today. And it is, it is an incredibly large bite to break off, and it's surely more than I can chew. Um, but the goodness of God is an attribute of God that we need to understand and understand well. And when I looked into the goodness of God, thinking I knew quite a bit about what makes God good, I quickly realized I'm like way, way off. Not way off. I know God's good. But, but there are things about his goodness that I was definitely unaware of, weren't clear to me, and it's to no fault to people who have taught me about God. It's just like something that we don't talk about very much. It's not stuff that we talk about and uh, display as like, oh, God's goodness, here's, here's all it means. But it's important that we know what it means. And because he is infinite, he's so much bigger than us, uh, the scripture has to use uh, analogies. It has to use word pictures to help us to understand what God is like. Because answering that question, what's God like, if we're going to call him good, it's, it's hard to know how to explain that when it's this infinite God who's way, way bigger than us, way, way more good than us. We need, we need it to be brought to our level so that we can understand it. And so today I want to bring to you two analogies that the Scripture uses to describe what God is like, and we're going to specifically focus on how it shows us that He is good. We're going to turn first to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to come clean about something. I forgot my Bible. This is just an empty notebook that I brought up here. Um, but I have the scripture here. I want to give you some context for Romans 11 before we read the passage that we have this morning before us. Uh, the, the book of Romans is written by Paul, 
written to this church uh, made up of two distinct groups. There's a group of formerly Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus, and then there are people who come from a Gentile background. That just means anybody who is not a Jew. So every other background there could possibly be who believed in Jesus. So we've got the formerly Jewish, the formerly Gentile becoming Christians. That is who makes up the Roman church. The idea that Paul is wanting to drive home throughout this whole book is that people are saved and become obedient to God, obedient followers of him by faith. If you've ever read a book, a letter that Paul wrote, you hear those two words at the end of that all the time, by faith. It's something that he drives home time and time again because it's the truth of the gospel. That's how we are saved. That's the only way. But because there's this chasm between these two communities that he's writing to, the formerly Jewish uh, people who have become Christians and the Gentiles who have become followers of Jesus as well, he has to try to unify them. And it's by uh, by this argument that he's trying to unify them. He's saying to the formerly Jewish people, it was never your ritual, your, your things that you did for God that made you right with God. It was your faith in him. All the way back to Abraham, Paul argues, it was Abraham's faith that saved him. Not his rituals, not the things that he did, not circumcision, not all these things that the Jewish people did. It was faith. And so, likewise, that's how the Gentiles become a part of God's family as well, is by faith. He's saying your good standing with God comes from having faith in Jesus. And in this passage we're about to read, Paul's explaining to the church why the way to pleasing God and the way to becoming a part of God's family, it's so, like for the Jewish people especially, it almost like it seems to have changed. They thought all along it was all these things that they were doing, all these things that God told them to do, that that was what was saving them. And he's trying to explain, okay, look, here's why you were actually right with God. It wasn't because you are doing these other things. It was because you had faith. So the Jews, the Israel, the people of God were given the law through Moses, but all along they were saved by faith. So now that these people who weren't Jews are welcomed into the Christian church, into following Jesus, these Jewish people are kind of like, what in the world is going on? How are they? They don't have to do anything. Well, they didn't have to be circumcised. They don't have to do all these rituals. They don't have to sacrifice. Last week, this guy was worshiping some other god. How is it that he and I are on the same playing field? How is it that we are a part of the same community? It would be confusing to say the least, right? That would be very, very hard for those people, as you can imagine. So we're going to read uh, chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. Quite a long passage, but it's important for helping us see this analysis that we're going to get to towards the end of it. Read with me in verse 11. It says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? He's talking about the Jewish people who are having a hard time coming to faith in Jesus, putting their faith in Jesus as opposed to their rituals they've had for so long. He says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion be? I'm talking to you now, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. 
So Paul, Paul comes from a Jewish background, but he is sent by God to these non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And he's saying, I'm ministering to them hard because I hope it'll get the Jewish people envious of the fact that they're all coming to faith in Jesus. They're getting to be a part of the family of God. While Meanwhile, they're getting hung up on this fact that it's by faith in Jesus. It's not all these rituals. So that's why Paul is saying that. For if they're rejection. Oh, let me get back up. I'm talking, we're going to start back. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches." Some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith." Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fail, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? It's verse 22 that we're going to focus on to help us see this picture of God being good. But here's Paul's analysis before we get to that. God chose Israel to be his people, to be the branches of this tree that he makes, that makes up his family, the people who will be reconciled to God, the people who are in good standing with God. To live as a branch of that tree, one needed to have faith in God all along. From the time of Abraham, when God called him, it was faith that made someone a branch of God's tree. When Jesus came, he represents God, and more importantly, he makes atonement for us, and so he allows us to become a part of that tree. It's now Jesus who we're supposed to put our hope into, our faith into, to follow Jesus. When a branch refuses to acknowledge and place faith in Jesus, it will die and it will be broken off from that tree of God's. And meanwhile, if a non-Jew, what Paul calls a wild olive shoot, puts faith in Jesus, they're just as readily grafted into this cultivated olive tree. That's the picture. That's the analogy. And so God is good because he is kind and he is stern. We like the kind part, don't we? That's the, that's the part of God's goodness that we, that we talk about and we probably think about when we call God good. We don't often talk about or think about that sternness of God, but that is what he is. He's kind and he's stern, and because of those two things, that makes God good. He is like a keeper of a tree. He's like a person who prunes, takes care of it, I think they're called an arborist, right? Is anybody in here an arborist? Amateur arborist? No? Okay, good. This is going to be a lot easier to explain that. <laughs> Way less pressure. 
So what does a good arborist do to a tree that they're taking care of? Well, first he prunes. He severs things. Your, your version of your Bible might not say kind and stern. It might say kind, kindness and severity. Shorten severity a little bit. What's it say? Sever. That's what a good arborist does. If there is a branch upon his tree that is going to threaten the rest of the life of the tree, or if that branch is just not producing what it's supposed to, a good arborist looks at that tree and goes, it's not producing. It doesn't matter how, how important of a branch that branch may seem to be, it's coming off. Because that's what a good arborist does. They are not going to allow anything that might hurt or injure or corrupt the rest of the tree to remain upon it. They take care of it. They prune it because that is going to lead to the best life for the rest of the tree. And so that's what God does as well. He's very, very kind, but he's also severe. Anything that might hurt it, he's going to take it off. And in this analogy, we need to keep it in the context of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about how we find ourselves in the family of God. How, if we are going to receive salvation from God or not. Abraham received salvation from God because he had faith in him. Sadly, there were probably numerous people who grew up in this community of the Jewish people who did all of the formalities, did all of the rituals, all these different things, but because there, was, there wasn't a faith in their heart in this God that they're worshiping to, they were probably severed from God's tree because it was faith that was necessary. And so we, the Jewish people, see it as a huge leap to go, okay, now we're just supposed to have faith in Jesus? That's the way to be a part of God's family, be a part of God's tree? They see it as this huge leap when all throughout time it was faith in God that saved people. It was faith that helped us to receive the eternal life that we all long for deep down. So God's good because he prunes and he severs and he has a strict uh, requirement for who gets to be a part of his tree. What else does a good arborist do? They graft in what will produce. They graft in what does have faith, and that's what God does. Whatever, whatever person, whoever believes, right? How many times do we repeat that? John 3.16, it's whosoever should put their faith in him, whosoever believes, that's who gets to be a part of God's family. It's not whosoever among the Jewish people get, uh, who believes gets to be a part of God's family. It's not whoever among High Plains Community Church who believes gets to be a part of it. It's whoever. Any old person who puts their faith in Jesus gets pruned into God's family, pruned into this tree. Something interesting I learned was that in this analogy with the wild olive shoot and a cultivated olive tree was this, is that a wild olive shoot could hardly produce any, any olives, any fruit at all. Okay? They, they didn't have the root system to be able to handle very many uh, olives, if any at all. But if you were to take a shoot, grafted onto a cultivated olive tree, which these olive trees can get humongous, they, they'll grow like they're just a part of that tree. And so that's such a good picture for us is uh, we're more than likely, you're not of Jewish blood. We're all Gentiles now. 
How good is God that he allowed? His plan for salvation was not just these, this tiny little community. When you look at the whole world, this tiny little community, that was all he was going to save. All along, it was God's heart to save every single person upon the whole entire planet. You go and you look at the Old Testament prophecies. One of the most interesting things in the Old Testament prophecies is the fact that many of them prophesied that the Gentiles would become a part of God's family. It's amazing to me that these Jewish people, prophets, wrote this. And it's because they heard it from God. It's because God gave them his plan that he would save the Gentiles. But imagine this Jewish community. They think they're the chosen people of God. And then God says to them, hey, tell everybody it's the Gentiles too. It's everybody who's going to be saved one day. It would be a controversial thing to think, but that's what God is like. He's a good God. He wants nobody to be left out so that opportunity is open for everybody to be grafted in. It's an opportunity for all of us to be grafted in, and all it takes is faith in him. So there's goodness seen in that God judges. In Genesis, what does he assess all of his creation as being? He calls it good, right? Day after day, it was good. It was good. It was good. At the end of it all, at the culmination of it all, after he creates humanity, it creates Adam. It's very good. You see, God could not have created anything but what is good because it is just who he is. He is it's a part of his deep-seated identity that he is good. And so he assesses and he judges rightly, and it's interesting that he assesses his own creation. Isn't it kind of funny? It would be like somebody making some, uh, like an artist making some piece, and hopefully an artist isn't so conceived that they're like, this is the most amazing piece ever, but that's what God does, because he's a good judge, and he only could have created what was perfectly good, and so that's what he says. He assesses what's good, and he doesn't tolerate what is not good. Though he couldn't have created anything that wasn't good, if there would have been something that wasn't good, he would have not tolerated it. That's why when sin entered into Adam and Eve, there was no toleration of it. There wasn't a second chance. There wasn't a, oh, we'll let you off this time. It was out, out of the garden. And since then, what have we been trying to do is just find our way back to that place. But God is still judging. God still looks at sin, and he can't tolerate it. When we talk about this part of God, we often talk about his holiness. That's what this is. Part of his goodness is that he is holy, and he can't tolerate anything that is not good. This is good for us, though. Because if God, his goodness is meant to be seen through his judging— we, we would hope that he'd be a good judge, right? I think if we were all to be honest with ourselves and if we were to like make up in our mind what we would want a hypothetical God to be like, we would want them to be some combination of uh, good, a good judge of things, uh, knowing what is right and wrong. We would want our God to be like that. Well, uh, we've got him. We've got a God who does those things. We don't want other people who hurt us to get off scot-free, right? Well, they don't. They, they, in God's view of things, they don't. But guess what? That means when we hurt others, we hurt him. We don't either. We don't get off on our not-goodness either. He sees good and he sees bad. There's no gray area with him. 
And so that makes him a good judge. But in his goodness, he also made a way for us to have life. Life to the full. Salvation is just, it's through faith alone. Scripture is clear. It's through faith alone. It's not something else you got to do. It's not being even baptized. It's not even taking communion. It's faith. If you have faith in Jesus, you're saved. That's, that's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty wide gate to walk through if you think about it. And a good God allows for, you know, this is, it's a hard step to take to put your faith in Jesus, to actually truly surrender your life to him. But at the same time, how much easier could it get? If you've heard the gospel, if you've been taught it correctly, it's up to you. Here's your option. You're free to believe in him or not believe in him. His goodness is seen in that he has made a way for all people to be part of God's family. So he's a good arborist. That's what God is like. That's how he is to be seen as good. But that goodness as a keeper of a tree means he's both very, very kind makes a way for life, but he's also, he's also severe. And he's got his way that he wants things done. He has this way that we can be grafted into his family. And if we try to make our way into that tree some other way, we're not going to make it. It's just by that one way. So that's analogy number one. He's an arborist. Analogy number two is God as a father. I don't even have a scripture for this because it's just all over the place, right? God fathered Israel from the beginning, from the time of Abraham. God was the father who was pleased to present us with his son Jesus at his baptism. He's meant to father us today. That's, that's what he wants to do, is to be a father to us. And this can be a complicated analogy, depending on your background, depending on your family setup and all those sort of things, right? Because we, we, especially with this knowledge of, okay, God's good, that means he's kind and severe. Uh, and if you think about your fathers in this real, our earthly fathers, uh, they maybe are both of those. Maybe the scale tips to one side or the other, though, right? And so we have complications with understanding that God is good and he's my father. Some of us do. And so just to caveat that, we need to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. We we. Do this with, maybe you have this dynamic with your fathers that they, they maybe lean towards the severe side as opposed to the kind side. And, uh, but you're supposed to love your dad, right? You got to love your dad, right? And so you can kind of feel like this manipulation into like, well, I got to love my dad because he's my dad, but he kind of is, he's not, he, I don't feel like he gives me what I am needing in these moments all the time. Well, this picture of God as our father is not too far off, but we have to, have to, have to come at this analogy with a clean slate. We have to understand God as a father from scripture's perspective, not our own perspective, not reading our own personal family story onto what God is like, okay? Can we do that this morning? Because that is going to help us in all sorts of ways. Here's what God's goodness as a father teaches us, where him as an arborist teaches us the way to salvation, how he's kind and severe. I think the analogy of God as a father teaches us how God wants to develop us as people, that's what a father is meant to do. That's what God the Father wants to do for you and I, is to develop us into a certain image, right? Into the image of Jesus. 
C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, which I would highly recommend. Um, if you can handle Lewis, it's a, it's a hard one. It's a, you you got to take some time to read it. I personally do. I found out when I was reading it over again, I'm reading it for the second time, um, my retention level was 0% from the first time. I had underlines and circles and notes in the margins, but I was like, it must have been somebody else that read this because I didn't remember it. Such a good book, though. He talks about... God's goodness, and how we often talk about God's goodness, and what we mean when we say God's good is that he is loving, okay? And what we mean by him being loving is that he's kind, okay? And what we mean when we say someone is kind most often is that they let us do whatever we want, and so we might have to make sure that along those definitions, we have the right definitions because That's how we think of kindness, and I think that's why I want to make all these things about the other side of God's goodness clear, is that if we think about God's goodness as, oh, he'll just let me do whatever I want, that's clearly not the case. He says that we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven, but a grandfather in heaven, because you grandparents in the room, what do you do with your kids and with your, oh, maybe not your kids, your grandkids, right? They get everything. (laughs) They get to do whatever they want. They get everything they want. That's how you treat them. And that's how we wish God was like, but it's just not what he's like. Somewhere along the line, our definitions of his kindness, his lovingness, his goodness is not quite right. And so that's where knowing him as a father comes into play. And so how is God good and how is he our father? Well, he is our maker. He's our creator. We already covered this with the last analogy. He's so powerful that out of this abundant goodness within him, he creates everything. And our fathers here on earth played a part in our creation in a way, but it's different. Because God created out of this abundance of goodness in his heart, this abundance of true love, that he wanted these Little creatures, us little creatures, somehow, some way, God wanted to have us be a part of his creation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. That's, a, that's an evidence in itself of his goodness. He wanted us here for some odd reason, right? Our parents can't always say the same thing. Hopefully you can, but you can't always say the same thing. You don't always feel that that is the truth for you in relation to your earthly parents. But God, he is our maker. He's our creator. He was intentional when he made each and every one of us. And he was intentional when he made all of creation and he made it all good. And he didn't have, it was not a part of his his will that it would be what it is today. But here we are. And so if he's our maker and he's, he's our father, there's, once again, there's no grading on a curve when it comes to his standard for goodness. There's no letting people off. There's no second chances. It's, it's this way. There's no do-overs. Our fathers maybe drive that sort of thing home. Our fathers are meant to guide us through this life, and maybe they give you do-overs. Maybe they don't. Maybe they show you mercy. Maybe they don't so much, but that's, that's all a part of fathering, and that's part of what God does. He He loves authoritatively. That's how Lewis describes it in this book. He's good and he loves authoritatively. That's what a father is supposed to do, is love authoritatively those of his creation, those who he has made. And so that's what he does. And we, we could think of probably 
Each of you could probably think of examples of people who grew up and were misguided and had a crazy life or wild life or whatever, making wrong decisions. But at a certain point, people find somebody to mentor them, to be like a father figure, to, to kind of set them out on the right path. And, and their life just takes a total shift because this one influence in their life brings them, loves them authoritatively and shows them the right way to live life. And it leads them to what Jesus, calls, Jesus would call the full life, a life to the full. That's what we're after, right? And so we need to be loved authoritatively. We don't have, we don't have as enough goodness to know what we want even. And so we need God to love us authoritatively. And that's what a father does as well. God's good as our father because he leads with kindness first. Do you think that's true? Romans 2.4, his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance you ever read that verse before? Have you ever thought about that? What is he saying? What's, what's Paul saying there? It's saying that as our Father, God wants us to avoid his severity. He wants us to avoid that sternness that comes if we do not align with what he says is good. If we don't do what he calls good, he will meet us with sternness. But it's his kindness that he leads with. We, we have no argument that God isn't kind and that he doesn't lead with kindness today especially because we know the reality of the cross. We know the reality of Jesus coming to die for our sins. That happened before we, any of us took a breath. To me, that's the goodness of God. That's the kindness of God that came before us. And think about this about Jesus as well. He, he spent time most famously with people who were not good, right? And we talked about how God can't tolerate not good. So how does that work out? Well, Jesus is representative of God. Jesus is God. And God is not supposed to tolerate not good. He's not supposed to tolerate sin. He's not supposed to tolerate corruption, badness, rebellion. But Jesus spent all of his time, that was his main... uh, critique from the religious people. He was with those people too much of his time. So this is the kindness of God. This is the goodness of God that Jesus, when he walked this earth, he wasn't revolted by the sin of the earth. He didn't just spend his time with the Pharisees in the temple all the time. He was everywhere. Would a kind, good God do that? These other gods that you hear stories about, little g gods that um, are false gods, and do they do that sort of stuff? No, any, any, there's no sense of this coming to be with us like Jesus did, and there's definitely no sense of tolerating anything that they're supposed to not be able to tolerate. Jesus probably would have been expected by many people. He would, have, he would have just not tolerated a single sinful person at all, but that's exactly what he went to go do, is to minister to them. He went to the sick, not to the healthy. He went to those who didn't know faith so that he could express to them God's goodness and hopefully lead them to faith in him. And so how else is God good? This is the last point for this analogy of God as our Father. He, he has got a desired future for you and I. A father is supposed to disciple 
and to display to their children how to go through life. And that is what Jesus did to us. He discipled and he displayed to us what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live this life. And he patiently, very patiently, very mercifully calls us to this higher life, to this full life that he wants to give to us, but we, we don't always do such a good job of following that lead, following in his discipleship path, following the display of goodness that he brought to us, that Jesus did. But he's loyal to us beyond any loyalty that we could fathom. In, in all of our messing up in our lives, he, he's still loyal to us. He still offers out this hope of salvation on one hand, but growth into his image on the other hand. There's an there's a idea in God's head for what you could be like someday. And that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. If, if you could imagine what God would want you to be like X number of years down the road, what would it be like? What would you imagine? I think a lot hinges on what you think God's like, and that's why we're talking about his goodness today. He's, he's good. We're called to love him obediently. He loves authoritatively. We love obediently. We submit to this good God, assuming he has a plan to disciple us, assuming he is a true image of what goodness looks like, that's how we submit obediently to God, our Father. That's how we submit. And it's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Today we have that gift as well, that, that pursuing of us, that kindness that reaches out to us before we could ever know God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to all people. And that's the only way that we could find ourselves becoming that person we think that God might want us to become. A better person, maybe. That's your goal. A good person, hopefully. Good in the sense that God is good. We focused uh, a lot today, this morning, on uh, the side that I think we neglect most of God's goodness, which is kind of those harder parts, his severity, the fact that he, has, he, has, he is good, and so he can't tolerate anything but good. And I don't do that to uh, strike fear, but to help us to understand the true nature of his goodness, right? Because he is good, and I need to add this caveat before we end that just because you feel like your life is hard and it feels like there's severity coming at you, sternness coming at you for some reason, things in your life are hard. It doesn't always mean it's God's judgment. It doesn't always mean it's him being severe with you. Life is just hard. There's an extra element to all of this that we haven't even talked about. And there's the element that we have hardly touched on, which is like God trying to make you good. That's a whole part of this as well. But we focus solely, mostly on his goodness today. Well, in God's goodness, he can turn hard things that you're going through into this development of you that we talked about with him as a father. If, if hard things go on in your life, it's not always that he is punishing you for something. It might be, though, that life has just happened. The effects of sin have hit you and your family or whatever. But God always offers us in those scenarios a chance to be 
taught, to be discipled through it, to be grown through it into a good person, a, a person more like God, a person more like Jesus is. So these are my final thoughts for you this morning as we talk and wrap up our talks or thinking about God's goodness is that we don't call God good because he gives us all we want, because he loves us no matter what and no matter who we choose to be and no matter what we choose to do, because that wouldn't be a good God to follow if he allowed that. We call God good because he was merciful to us when we were in sin. Call God good because he loved us and sent his son for us, and we call him good because he's unfailingly kind and he's just totally severe at the same time. And that's a good thing. We want a God who is good at the deepest level, who just is good. He's not, he's not turned in his opinions by external things, as Pastor Dan has talked about the last few weeks. He is good. So we call God good because he's actually infinitely good. But of course, it takes faith to believe that. It goes back to Paul. It, it takes faith to believe in this God. It takes faith to believe he's good. If you've had a hard time in your life understanding and believing that he actually is good, it takes faith. It might take faith for you to understand that. And so I leave you with that. Think about this week, the, the goodness of God throughout your life. Maybe, maybe take a look at your life and realize where you thought he was not being good, where it was actually just these other, other, other aspects of his goodness that were at work during those seasons of your life. It might change your whole view of God to see him as a good father an infinitely good father. So let's bow our heads. Pastor Dan will come and pray to dismiss us this morning. Father in heaven, in the quiet of this sanctuary, I often pray and thank you for your goodness, as many do in this room. <clears throat> And we are grateful for that, Lord, to know that we have a God who is kind but yet stern, who disciples us and leads us in a direction to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. May those purposes this morning, that idea, Lord, of you being, you love us authoritatively and we should love you obediently, may we leave with that today, Lord. When Jesus said, only God is good, I believe that to be true. And this morning our pastor has taught us what that goodness is and what it looks like and the attributes of who you are. May that be something that would drive us with a desire to be obedient to you this week, to drive us to, with a desire to live in a way that would bring you glory and give others hope. Because as Paul says, he lives in a way that others might be saved. May we walk out of this church today with that idea in mind that you're good and we will live our lives that others might experience that same goodness through salvation in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.